There was this great quote from Dawn that we made immortal in our minds as we were just starting out street performing and we went to him to get our license to work in Sydney. And he was talking about another street performer who had just quit. And we were like, oh, wow, he stopped. And he was like, yes, it will happen to us all. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, we'll take the license now. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy, your host, and in this episode, I'm pleased to bring you a great conversation that Mike Wood had with Pete Sweet back in September 2012. I love the opening soundbite from this exchange because it captures the beginning and the end of a typical busking career. We all start somewhere, often full of enthusiasm and excitement, and the idea of it ever ending is something that rarely enters our consciousness. For Pete Sweet, the beginning of the journey started in San Francisco around the onset of the new millennium. Like so many before him, he used the trial and error method to find his feet and had the tenacity to get through that initial period of suckage that seems to be a rite of passage as one becomes a member of this community. But what do you do once you get through that preliminary stage of suck? Far too often, performers become complacent when they have a show that's working, but Pete never gave himself permission to settle. He's one of the few performers I know to create an impressive curriculum in the ongoing pursuit of excellence. This drive and ambition have served him well and allowed him to live a life of sustainable creativity. A life full of so many great stories from the pitch. We're rolling. Uh, this is Mike Wood at Mike Wood's Kitchen Table with Pete Sweet. And I have known Pete for, what are we going to say, five years-ish? Five years, is that all? I think so. Okay. So not nearly his whole life. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I'm very curious to know all these things. Not the least of which is... What came first, the skills or the performing, the wanting to perform? Ah, fascinating. Both. There are many chickens and eggs, like Russian dolls. Yeah, yeah. It's just all chickens and eggs all the way down. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I started to juggle in unicycle when I was 14. For any particular reason? Was that a gym class? Was that... Oh, no. That was just... There was weirdos that would talk to me, hang out after school in high school at Berkeley High. One of them was uh, Jimmy Schaefer, who was juggling nine tiny little beanbags at the time. Mm -hmm. He later made a street show that he performed in, like, Berkeley (laughs) at the Salon of Stroll, juggling a flaming watermelon on a six-foot unicycle. Right. That old trick. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, yeah, so you actually grew up in the San Francisco area? Yes, I was born in Berkeley, and I went to school in Berkeley schools. I did my first year of high school at Berkeley High, and that's when I learned how to juggle and unicycle. And then I moved to Indonesia for two years with my family. And I juggled and unicycled a bit there. Actually, my parents bought me a unicycle, which I rode around town a little bit, but it was kind of like I was weird enough (laughs) there. In Indonesia. In Indonesia. Right. So I didn't juggle and unicycle a lot like outside the house, but I would... When I was full of teenage angst, I would go out in the middle of the night and like put on my headphones and headbang on my unicycle around the, <laughs> the Indonesian neighborhood, much to the confusion of anyone that happened to be on their front porch at the time. So I guess the question from that is, why Indonesia? What do your parents do? Ah, my parents are both professors of comparative religion. They both have PhDs in God stuff. 
and they were helping to start a graduate program in religion and society at a university in central Java right. uh, in a town called Salatiga in the mountains. And I went along with them on the condition that I would get to have a pet monkey, which I did. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> you started juggling just before you moved to him. Yeah, and, and then I didn't do that much when I was there, just a little bit. And then I came back, and in my senior year, I finished at Berkeley High, and I met Adam Adler, and I met also Neil Stammer, mm-hmm. a.k.a. Andrew Allen. And he taught Adam a lot, and Adam was uh, phenomenally gifted and driven. He was juggling, like, seven three-inch DXs, something like that, and uh, doing incredible three-ball stuff. And I still wasn't really juggling that much at that time. It wasn't till kind of my geez, freshman year of college, coming back and hanging out with Adam uh, and tripping my head off. <laughs> this is Berkeley, remember? So. <laughs> and juggling. Uh, and so we did a fair bit of that. And was that shit? Was that just like a... a How public is this? Am I going to get in trouble? I don't think you can get in trouble. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the statute of limitations on being high in high school and juggling is well up. Yeah, well, so I got rather into it again, particularly the three ball stuff. And was it because it was like, dude, my hands are huge? <laughs> or because you appreciated the well, challenge of it? And I it mean, just, you know, I guess, first of all, I just like... Adam juggled glow balls for me while I was tripping and blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And this is because was, LEDs was, weren't invented yet. So. <laughs> and he was... A, <laughs> <laughs> Think about how the world would be different for you if there had been LED keychains yeah. back then. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the they, we had these Aerotech glow balls that mm. were stunning. And Adam was just a great performer, too. So, and then I was walking in the woods one day with friends and had oranges and started juggling and came went, oh, I really like this. And so I started again. And right. I did it kind of through the end of college. And uh, David Birnbaum was also very good friends with Adam at the time. And he learned how to juggle kind of like near the time that I remembered how to juggle. Mm. And uh, then we juggled a ton together through my college years. And what were you doing at college and where were you? Ah, I did two years at Madison, Wisconsin, studying anthropology and Indonesian studies. Then I dropped out for a year and worked at a back healthcare store, selling ergonomic chairs and doing like ergonomic fittings for. They have those in Berkeley workstation. Yes, they do. <laughs> you <laughs> no, <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. And then uh, and went to Indonesia on that time off. And then I went to Santa Cruz to UC Santa Cruz for my last two and a half years and did a double major in sociology and anthropology. And I will proudly say for the record that I graduated Phi Beta Kappa and honors in anthropology and highest honors in sociology and received the Dean's Award for my thesis entitled Forgetting the Body, the Impossible Dream of the Information Age. Wow. (laughs) That's pretty cool. Yeah. I was a mega nerd. Yeah. Although I think technically that makes you a dork. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> so, so you've got this degree now. Have you been doing shows through college at this no, point? No, I hadn't and been doing shows. So it's uh, not until you finish university. No, the only show I did was I did a piece called Einstein's Dreams at my father's wedding, which I then performed all over the place, which was a spoken word piece by Alan Lightman from the book Einstein's Dreams that I illustrated with juggling. It was about body time versus mechanical time. Okay, cool. 
Yeah. So then I graduated university, and uh, I was kind of not sure what I was going to do, thinking about going on to grad school or working further in ergonomics. Um, and then uh, David Birnbaum, my juggling partner and very good friend, had been in China the previous year, and he had dropped out of Reed College and gone to learn Chinese at a variety theater in Beijing, where he performed in their variety show, and they trained him in monkey-style movement in between shows, among other things. He also trained at a monastery in Kung Fu in the mountains, and he came back and was like, ah, let's travel around the world. And I said, great, that sounds perfect. I love to travel around the world. I traveled around the world when I was 13 with my family, and I liked it. So I was like, okay, so well, we got to get some jobs and save money and like do a trip. And he's like, no, we'll street perform. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, um, well, I don't know how that works um, yeah. or how, how we do that. And uh, now, Had you seen street performers at this point? Well, I had, I had, when I was a kid, I went to Pier 39 and I saw the gang. I don't remember who I saw because was, I was too young. But I remember loving Pier 39 for watching shows there. And that was back in the day when they were in the middle of the pier and there were this like beautiful round of balconies. Yeah, yeah, I've only ever seen video. Right, yeah. And Andrew Allen, actually, back when I was in high school, still owned the Juggling Capital, which was a juggling store right above that pitch. Okay. Which got killed when the pitch moved. So this is kind of where, like, Frank Olivier enters the picture. As he does. As he does. (laughs) From the left of your screen comes Frank Olivier. (laughs) Yes, gangling in. And I had met Frank already, hanging out with Adam, and juggling in his old place that he had on Solano Avenue. He had this huge warehouse storefront place that he yeah. rented for ridiculously cheap because he's Frank, that he eventually had to move out of. Now, at this point, does the whole world know Frank Olivier? or is? Okay. Yeah, this is 1990. No, this is 2000, the year 2000. Right. I graduate university. Okay. And I'm like 24. And uh, the whole world knows Frank Olivier. So Frank takes us out on the street to kind of like show us the pitches. And there's the cable car turnaround in San Francisco where they turn the cable cars around and you do a seven-minute show in between cable cars coming. And he showed us that and he showed us the street pitches on Fisherman's Wharf. And I saw a show of Chris Carney, who was probably the first street performer I ever saw actually on the street. So not on the pier, but on the street street. And Chris was kind of at the beginning of his performance career. I think Chris is like a year ahead of me in this game. And he was still at a place where he was doing crazy shit that sometimes worked incredibly and sometimes just fell on its face. Such as as selling jars of nothing and Alcatraz tours that were like a mask and goggle with a snorkel to passerbyers to build a crowd. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like throwing lit torches at the audience like every street performer knows the gag of pretending to throw the torch to the audience member but Chris Carney would just throw torches at the crowd and they would either catch them or move out of the way or get hit by them and in any case it would be exciting and sometimes funny and he never got sued yet so (laughs) but his show was incredible when it worked and I knowing Chris over the years I got to watch him kind of like calibrate and get to the point where he could just do a brilliant, brilliant show that was right on the line. When he was still learning, he would offend people 
so much that he could have couldn't win them back, or he would just be too weird and they wouldn't get it. And he didn't manage to win them to him enough and kind of like solidify the rapport and the support of him in the show. And once he got that, it was amazing because he could go so far, like so, like Bill Hicks far, like really far. (laughs) But at the end of the show, you just wanted to like, you know, take him home and make him a pot of soup and give him a sweater. Like he just. (laughs) And what's his finish? What's the show? He did bike tricks. He was in the first ever X Games. So he's quite a good BMX bike uh, trick guy. And then he did straight jacket escape. And he wrapped himself in more than 100 feet of chain. Three chains, one vertically around his body, one horizontally, and then one however his audience right. members. Dealer's choice. Yeah, dealer's choice, exactly. <laughs> and then five locks that they could lock anywhere. And the thing that was fantastic about his show was that he would get men out of the audience and then he would insult them, but not in the way that street performers normally do, of like insulting the volunteers to make the street performer look better, but in the way of like getting them riled up. So he would get these guys and he would have them chaining him up and he would get them pissed off so that they were like aggressively wrapping this chain around his body, which put the audience in a position of being complicit in this kind of like violent bondage of this small and fairly charming guy. (laughs) Um, So that, yeah, he just completely locked up the crowd at that point. And uh, it was the most, definitely the most exciting straightjacket escape that I've ever seen, hands down. He doesn't do it anymore. He's doing pretty much indoor stand-up comedy now. He has a damn good table magic show, too, which he can perform, but I don't think he's doing that much now. Right. So that's the first street show you've seen. This is while Frank Olivier is walking around with a clipboard saying... <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, Frank was friends with Chris, too. So right. Frank introduces to Chris. But basically, the first day, David and I went out to go do street shows, and we went to Union Square, and there was some sort of, I don't know, peace and love fair or something happening in Union Square. And uh, I was working retail at the time, still, and I said, well, if we can make as much money in one day as I make at my retail job in a day, then I'll quit. And we did, and I did. Uh, it's 12 years later. I haven't had a job since. All right. Uh, so that was your last straight job was selling ergonomic chairs to... Yep. Ergonomes. <laughs> to ergonomes. <laughs> yeah. And we we did various stuff on the street, but we really pretty much died on the street. And David so, had heard from... Oh, sorry. Do you no, no. I was just going to say back up and go to your first show. I want to know what that was like. Hmm. The first show, right. So was it like at the end of Frank Olivier's tour? No, no. Frank Olivier wasn't with us. We just went there and just checked stuff out. We didn't do a show with Frank there. We okay. Sh- so he shows you where all the pitches are. And then and you- then we went somewhere else. <laughs> we didn't go to any of the pitches he showed us. I don't know why. I think it was because there was this thing happening in Union Square. So we thought it would be a good opportunity okay. to go there. And we didn't have any trouble with the police, which is funny. But I think it's before they remodeled Union Square. Because they remodeled it at some point And they had this grand opening where they hired an old mime, I don't remember who, but like a famous San Francisco street performer mime to perform at the opening on Union Square. And then as soon as the opening was over, they put up all these no-performance signs everywhere. And closed it. (laughs) Bastards. So, but we did a show there. And I think I, like, you know, did a jumping mount onto my unicycle and rode it in circles. And then we juggled 
And did it feel good? Did you love it? Or was it like... It was exciting. Uh, it was exciting. We made, I think we made $17.50, something in that range, 17 and change in our first show. And it was totally exhilarating. And then we had to kind of like negotiate with the stand people for when we could do the show. And at one of the times when we weren't supposed to be doing a show, and we weren't doing a show, but we were just kind of like messing around with something and the woman said come you can't do a show right now we're like oh we're not doing a show we're just doing you know this i don't know balancing a stick on her nose or something right. and she was just like well can you just not do anything you're slowing down commerce <laughs> no but for us it was exciting because it was just like it was the first experience of the power of being outside on the street and actually being able to capture the attention of everybody was mm-hmm. right there sure and so like the fact that we could just be dithering and not actually even trying to do a show and that it would be getting enough attention to disturb this woman i mean you know whatever maybe yeah, she's yeah. crazy but for us it was rich that day and it was really good that we had that first positive experience because then we went on the wharf and just died on our ass and couldn't get a crowd and couldn't hold a crowd and didn't have a show and but the first day we had this like kind of picture of how it could work of how you know and for us you know, we probably had like 20 people our first show or something like that it wasn't like a lot how does it progress so you do the one show union square you spend a whole day doing shows there or whatever it is and then does it blow up do you you get on a plane yeah basically what happened was david had heard from our friend Corey tobino who had been uh, an acrobat with cirque du soleil that the place where people really appreciated circus was australia Right. And that those lovers it, of culture <laughs> that in Australia they just love it, they love circus, and that you know that he and his friends were out on the street and they were doing handstand or something, and people were just throwing money at them. Sure, yeah, um, I hear it's the same. <laughs> so we wanted my to aunt's do, neighbor's brother knows that. <laughs> so we wanted to do like a really theatrical, artistic show, and we were going to be Wolf and Monkey, and David was going to be in full Beijing opera makeup. Mm-hmm. Um, and costume. I'm loving it. And I was going to be in like black fedora and like the smoking jacket that my date to the high school prom stole from the costume department at Berkeley High yeah. uh, for me to wear to prom, which I then had. So I was wearing like the smoking jacket of my fantasy, the Tom Waits fedora, and I was wolf and he was monkey and we were going to do like awesome artistic three ball juggling and um he was going to do staff and then we were going to do like a two high for the finale Mm -hmm. so none of this worked at all on the street in fisherman's wharf people just were like what we we didn't know how to build a show we didn't know how to build a crowd and david got pretty unhappy and upset about it i mean i wasn't happy either but he was really unhappy and was kind of like we should really just do this when we get to Australia because that's where it's going to work. Sure. Know, that's where they appreciate street performance. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so in the meantime, we started doing shows at the Cable Car Turnaround. And uh, a lot of the time, actually, he, I did shows, solo shows at the Cable Car Turnaround. He came in for some of them and the rest of the time I did solo. And then I did like three torch juggling and riding on a unicycle and three ball juggling. I think I did Einstein's dreams actually yeah I did I would do my spoken word and juggling piece on the street at right. the cable car turnaround and the cable car turnaround was a cash machine because 
for those of you who don't know it, it's a line of people waiting around a circular wooden platform to get on a cable car. So it's a built-in audience that are already there that have nothing to do. And, and they can't escape that. unless they want to miss their cable car. They can't escape and you just stand in front of the cable car when they're getting on it and each one has to walk by you one by one as they get on the cable car and walk by your hat. So shows at the cable car turnaround, you could make like a bad show would be under 20 and a good show could be like 80, 90... They're, and these are just seven minute. Yeah, so there was a lot of competition. There were other performers. There was a, a saxophone player and another couple jugglers, and it was hard, like street hard. I was in San Francisco last summer, and there were no street performers there. Is that pitch died? Is it? I don't know. I haven't checked that out in a long time. People can't fill seven minutes anymore. It's a, are you sure it was the right cable car turnout? It was because there's a few cable car turnarounds and. Some of them get worked and some of them don't. Okay, well. I'm sure if the police didn't close it that people are still doing it because okay. how else are you going to get your drug money? Right. <laughs> I mean, okay, that's slightly cynical. Not everybody there was in that, but some of them were. That time in San Francisco working the cable car turnaround was also partly magical because we were staying in Frank Olivier's um, warehouse space. We were house-sitting for him, and he had a huge warehouse with... A bungee trapeze in the living room and stage lighting and, you know, a thousand balls and 500 hats and right. a huge video collection, which we watched over and over again. Frank got us watching a lot of old performance stuff and listening to a lot of comedy to kind of like just get the structure of comedy and expose us to what is possible. So you told me yesterday that that amazing bit of advice that Frank gave you about what did he have? Oh yeah, yeah. He said well he said the first time he came and saw my show at the cable car turnaround, he said Oh yeah right. Right. So the first thing is we gotta get you funny. <laughs> 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 to which I said, okay. <laughs> and he said that what he did was he found the comedy that he loved the most, the stuff that made him laugh. And uh he just listened to it over and over and over again until it seemed stupid, like, till you know every word. And then that in this process, you kind of will absorb uh, the timing and the structure of comedy. So you, won't, you don't take their jokes, you don't steal that material or use what you, uh, anything from, the, from those comics, but you internalize what makes something funny. So living in his house, he has a huge collection of old LPs, and so, you know, we were listening to to Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor and, like, all those old guys. And then he also had a huge video collection. And so, you know, I watched Regard of Flight, like, a thousand times and Bob Hartman puppet stuff and just all kinds of old, incredibly good variety and comedy. So, and then we also had this massive, magical place to train and play. And sure. Yeah. That sounds awesome. So I, we saved enough for our plane tickets to Australia and then continuing on to Indonesia and China mm-hmm. by working the cable car turnaround and kind of gave up on street street shows. I mean, it was street, it's a street show, but it's, yeah, sure. it's cheating. <laughs> it, was, it was easier. It was uh, street shows with training wheels. So then we had a seven-minute show, and we arrived... At Darling Harbor. Where the streets are paved with (laughs) circus. (laughs) 
And we went out on Darling Harbor our first day, and it was like 40 degrees, and it was before the season really kicked in. It was, uh, I think, early December, so it was before, you know, the school holidays started in Sydney. And we went out there, and we just died for 20 minutes. We just tried and tried, and we managed to stop three people for a few minutes. And You, you dressed as, me and you, Dave, as Wolf and, Dave, and, yes, and Monkey. Wolf and yeah. Monkey, yes. And, uh, this show that you've never done before, really. Right, yes. <laughs> um, so you saved up with a semi-successful, financially, other show yes. to take your brand new, never-been-tried-before show to Australia. To Australia, where the streets are paved with gold. Yeah, circus. They're paved with circus. <laughs> paved with circus. <laughs> so after about 20 minutes, Bike Boy, Sean Bridges, yeah. came out and was like, All right, boys, your time's up. Right. <laughs> Starts his chainsaw, massive crowd. And we were just like weeping in our bowler hats. <laughs> So we went to the um, we went to the botanical gardens and we uh, rehearsed and rehearsed and made synchronized juggling. We bought an amplifier actually from Sean Bridges, which was this massive car stereo style amplifier that used um, nine volt batteries to power. Yeah. Then we started doing synchronized juggling routines with that, and he started doing fire staff to music to massive attack and. We did a <laughs> we did a three ball juggling number to burning down the house, yeah. And and our like few acrobatic moves, we were still trying to do two highs, which we could kind of pull off. And I was wearing shoes with terribly pointy heels that so I was standing on David's poor ripped up shoulders, and uh, it was great. We managed to get pass an audition to perform at Darling Harbor by performing in the forty degree heat at noon for three people. But the guy was like, "Oh, they can juggle." And they don't look like they're going to hurt anybody, so we'll give them a permit. So then for the rest of the season, we worked day shows and night shows. We did day shows at Circular Quay, and then we'd go and do night shows at Darling Harbor. Eventually, we shifted and just worked both draws at Darling Harbor, the day and the night. Mm. But we, we busted ass, and we learned how to make a show in Sydney. So we dropped a lot of our artistic ideals in terms of character and we learned a lot of hack techniques for building crowd but we still were performing our kind of juggling to music and uh yeah that was the deal we weren't very good but we had some good shows and we learned what street performing on the street street in hard conditions is and how to make it work yeah and then so you do that for a whole season and, and then you said you go to indonesia or you then we went to indonesia i had been obsessed with learning slack rope since before we left the Bay Area. Any, oh, also any we, particular reason? I, mean. I don't know. I don't know where it got into my head. I may have seen it in Cirque du Soleil when I was a kid, but if I didn't, then I don't know if I had ever seen it before. But <laughs> I just knew I wanted to do it. I had heard of it. I wasn't watching anything on the internet at that time. Right. So when I was in Australia, I met Mr. Bunk, Jeff, yeah. and uh, he was doing a slack rope show at the time. And he let me try his slack rope and showed me how to stand on it. And I absolutely loved it and went out the next day and bought a strap, which I then, in Indonesia, tied from the pillar of my dad's front porch to the coconut tree in his front yard and walked on every day until I could, basically. We trained there. We did a gig at the Hard Rock Hotel. <laughs> 
I think I have to tell this story. I think you do. <laughs> I think you do. Um, well, there's this holiday in Bali called Nyepi, which is the day of silence. Mm-hmm. And they have a huge parade the days before, and they burn all kinds of effigies, and they like go through the streets with these huge towers of monsters and demons and gods and pillars and sure. temples. This is all on Nyepi This is the Eve. day yeah, Nyepi right. Eve to like scare up the spirits, to scare the evil spirits all up into the air. And then on Nyepi Day, everybody has to be completely silent so that the spirits will think that everyone's gone and leave. Sure. Um, and, uh, They're not very smart, these spirits. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so and in Bali, it's a big deal. Like, yeah. There's people that go out on the street and will arrest you or escort you back to your hotel, depending on whether they are going to arrest you or escort you, mm. if you're out on the streets. Like, there's nothing happens on Yepi Day. And also, you're not allowed to use any electricity or burn any fire or make any loud noise. Sure. Or go out of your house. What this means in terms of the Hard Rock Hotel is that they have a bunch of tourists that are locked in the hotel with nothing to do on Yepi Day. And a bunch of Balinese people working in the hotel who really just want to be with their family and not doing anything. Right. So they hire us to do our fire and juggling show on Nyepi Day at Little Rock, which is the kids' area, kids' play area. So we're out there, like, playing Burning Town House and juggling on Nyepi Day, watching the, like, horrified Balinese staff, like, stand there and watch us, you know, defile their sacred holiday. Right, and attack, attracting the attention of all the spirits. <laughs> right. And, you know, asking the kids to cheer louder and whatever. It, yeah. it was kind of horrible. But, uh, yeah, contract's a contract. <laughs> um, so we're doing this show, and David is doing his fire staff spinning routine to Massive Attack mm-hmm. for the kids. And I'm behind him operating the sound system. And all of a sudden, I see all the faces of the kids just kind of like go white and I'm wondering what's going on. And then David on one of his spins of the staff above his head, his head flies back and this stream of blood like flies through the air off of his face. And he's hit himself in the head with the fire staff, which has cut his eyebrow and it's, you know, 35 degrees out. So he's totally drenched in sweat, and the blood just mixes with the sweat, and he just looks like, like a horror like movie. Freddy Krueger yeah, in like yeah. two seconds. <laughs> so, so the Balinese like rush out to come and uh, patch him up, and kind of like hide him from the children. <laughs> and uh, it's in that moment that I step forward and do my first ever slack rope performance. <laughs> I had tied a strap between the two coconut trees and uh, I went up and and walked on the strap for all the terrified kids. And Wow. I think I probably juggled three balls on the slack rope. That was, was the end balls. of the show then. It's like, um, ta-da! Hey, good question. I think it's very possible that David got patched. No, yeah, David got patched up while I was on the rope, and we did the last number of the show. Which is what? I think it's too high. Okay. 
Yeah, too high with torches on top. Now with extra blood. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, we finished the show. Yes. Okay, good. Like troopers, now extra from now with extra blood. Yeah, they didn't have us. And back. so you you leave <laughs> you leave Bali a hero. Yes, we leave Bali a hero. We go to Hong Kong, stay with friends of David's parents, then take the train all the way up into the mountains in Yunnan, and uh, go and stay at a monastery in the mountains and train kung fu every day. It was amazing. No electricity, no running water, just a spring in the courtyard of this temple, which had been destroyed in the Cultural Revolution, and the Shifu, through great dedication, rebuilt it and had uh, monks living there. Some kids training Kung Fu and some old monks that would come through and just pray and play Chinese chess and drink tea. And, you know, a gong would ring before dawn, that was the wake-up gong, and then another gong would ring, and we'd go and eat breakfast in the tiny kitchen, which was fresh steamed buns or rice porridge, and then go out on the field and rehearse. And I tied a rope between the two trees on the training yard, because we had morning and afternoon trainings, but there was some time in between, and I would walk on the rope in that time, and they would juggle or work on staff stuff. And... Um, I had heard that it was possible to ride a unicycle on a slack rope. Where did you hear that? Because the first time I knew that it was possible was when I saw you fucking do it. <laughs> I don't know. Like I said, I didn't see anybody do it on the internet. Maybe from talking to Jeff or maybe from talking to Frank. The same um, people that told you that Australia loved circus <laughs> were like, hey, and the other thing is you can do these two ridiculous things I was at the same time. naive and impulsive. So I heard that there was a unis that there had been this crazy white guy in the town who had had a unicycle. So I was like, wow, okay, well, I want to learn how to ride a unicycle on a rope, and I've got a rope. So I'll and I already know how to ride a unicycle. So, and I know how to ride okay. a unicycle, right. Sure. So I go into town, and I find this hotel, and I find this old unicycle that has just been sitting there for years. It has a regular bicycle seat on it, which makes it very difficult to ride at all. Because you don't have the crotch grabber, normal sort of right. hoopy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I went and I found this dude on the street who welded a wire, like a metal bar, to the front to make the basic shape of a unicycle seat. Mm-hmm. And then I found a sofa maker and had him upholster it for me. Wow. And then I found a bike guy and had him take the tire and tube off for me because I didn't have any tools. Then I tied a second rope above my head between the two trees in the training yard and just like hung on and got on the unicycle and it felt completely impossible at first, but I got it in a day. I could balance on it, like get on it using the rope and then let go. The learning curve was much quicker than I thought because the first day I was on there and I was just like, this is completely insane and impossible. And then the second day I could do it. And I learned slacker really fast at that time. You know, I could balance on it in the first few minutes when I tried Jeff's and just, like, loved it. But there was a a very long journey from being able to balance on it to being able to mount it and then being able to get off afterwards. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, and I was doing all this at six inches off the ground. So... Yeah, then after the monastery, we kind of were doing the greatest hits of China by David Birnbaum. And so we went next to Beijing. And we performed in the same little variety theater that he had performed at. So they trained us in between shows. And then Tian Laoshi, our teacher, 
and the director of the theater gathered all these crazy variety performers. They had all been trained in Beijing opera, which, for those of you who don't know, is kind of like a mixture of singing, acting, and acrobatics, and kung fu. And it's a fantastic thing to watch. So they had all been trained in that, plus other stuff. And so there was like a couple of acrobatic girls that could do like 20 backflips in a row across the stage. And there was uh, two guys that could bend a spear between their two throats okay. by walking towards each other. And there was a guy who did basically Chinese rap. Mandarin is a monosyllabic language, so it's really easy to rhyme, but also it's tonal and complex, so you can do all kinds of incredibly complex rhyming, double-meaning, wordplay stuff in Mandarin. And there's an old art form of that that this guy performed, and he would just go like soup lightning fast, like rhythms. So he was very popular. And then, you know, we juggled to the talking heads and we were white <laughs> which was right. so you closed the show right <laughs> exactly <laughs> and you know we would say a few words of Mandarin David could speak a fair bit of Mandarin at the time and I could ask where the bathroom was and sometimes people would understand me and right. sometimes not and when you say they were training you between shows who's they and what kind of training mostly it was Chen Lao the director of the theater and David, when he was there, he learned staff spinning and monkey training, like the Monkey King character movement. Mostly when we were there, we did basic Kung Fu exercise training. So Was it similar to what you were doing? High on kicks and stances. Yeah, fairly similar. Like on the mountaintop? Yeah, similar yeah. to that. So you finish at the theater in Beijing. Uh-huh. And then what? We wanted to take the Trans-Siberian Railroad all the way to Europe, but it was just too expensive and too much time. So instead we got a, I think we took the train to Hong Kong. Yeah, we took the train back to Hong Kong from Beijing. And then we flew from Hong Kong to Zurich. And in Zurich we stayed with my sister's ex-boyfriend and his mother Uh (laughs) outside of Zurich. And we went to do shows on the pitch. And there I met for the first time Barry Gould. He was just a totally charming and delightfully rude shuckster of a busker and uh, he performed for years pretty much the same show but always with shifting comedy because he's funny so Mm. he puts new stuff but a real street street show and what what is it i don't his uh, show yeah he juggles three balls three sickles and three torches and uh talks a lot of bullshit but uh, this is my kind of show yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's funny cool Um, i guess it'd be better if you only did one thing (laughs) (laughs) so and we met joey joey there also who was then working new york and zurich and we did our double act there and died still uh i mean died again i guess we had been doing better in australia before we left and we had to kind of like rebuild it up uh but i should say before barry gave us some really good advice because we were doing our show and we were ending with the two high and in the middle we had a woman, we were juggling three torches, juggling six torches around a volunteer and having her walk out of the pattern. Yeah. And he said, that's your high point. He said, you have to listen through your whole show and find the thing that the audience is responding the most to, and that's your finale. Which I don't think is necessarily true, but in our case it was. We weren't gauging correctly 
what the audience was appreciating. Right. So you were doing the thing our, that was, we were doing the thing that was hardest and in our mind the the most impressive. But right. actually, there was a lot more tension and engagement and satisfaction in the torches around the around the volunteer. So we shifted our show from that. We kept doing the double act. And we went to Heidelberg and like some various places, but uh, our rapport started to wear a little thin. It was a, a volatile marriage. And um, right. so uh, eventually we split the double act. So there's a bit of a breakup there. But up, I mean, up to now, is the plan working? The plan of like, we're going to see the world and pay for it with street performing? Mostly. It? Like we, we made enough to live and a bit more in Australia. I think basically we got ourselves through the trip all the way through the Indonesia stay and the ticket to Hong Kong. And maybe a bit of travel in China yeah. on what we made on the street. But then, yeah, pretty much f- the f- four months of travel and flights and stuff in Indonesia and China was too much. So at a certain point, David's parents helped us. Right. With things go on credit yeah. cards. and Yeah. So I think David bought my ticket from Hong Kong to Zurich and paid for a lot of stuff in our travel in China that I couldn't afford because I didn't have a reserve in the same way that he did. And then once we got back to Europe, then we became sustainable again fairly quickly. And we always kind of operated on the assumption that all we had was the busking money and then kind of like dipped into his savings or his mom's savings or whatever, wherever. I don't know where it came from. (laughs) (laughs) The savings. (laughs) Yes. He would just say like, hey, how about my mom takes us out to this nice meal? Because I want to eat a nice meal and you can't afford it. So (laughs) let's let mom do it. Let mom do it. So we split up the double act, and I decided to do a solo act of rope walking with volunteers holding one side of the rope and a lamppost holding the other side. And went out and did my first solo show in Freiburg, Germany. I don't remember what I made, but I remember that it was fun and that I was surprised at how well it worked. And um, yeah, my solo show came to life pretty quickly like it was pretty hack but my confidence on stage and my ability to work with the audience increased tremendously when I separated from David because our kind of conflict wasn't the best soil for my tree at that point like we never got good at sharing focus in the way that a lot of starting double acts eventually figure out how to bounce off each other and kind of like improv together and we never really got that. So we ended up with a lot of like scripted, synchronized text in our show to keep us on track. And then there would, yeah. be, there would be some improv there and some parts where I was just kind of leading the show and some parts where he was. But the whole kind of like the vibe that a lot of double acts, which stayed double acts and continued and became famous genius performers, found, we never found. Like we never became a good double act. We just... We just got good enough, like, we had enough grit and quality to make it happen. Yeah. But we never found a really good flow together in terms of... No, I, I mean, I've been in a double act, I understand. You understand. Exactly. Okay. There's those moments where you're like, ah, uh, we're talking at the same time. I mean, let me set you up and then punch it. Or uh, you realize, I'm just narrating his routine. Right. 
those those feelings. Are, yeah, I, I I know that. And it, yeah, you're right. There's some something transcendent about getting beyond that to the point where it's one show with two operators, right? Not two individuals. Yeah, and it, we, there was never a part where we kind of like found our separate roles in the show and settled into them or began to thrive in the different two roles. We were always just kind of like in competition for the same punchlines. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So actually, people who had seen the double act saw my solo act like a few weeks later and were like, whoa, I didn't know you could be not terrible. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. And are you doing the, the unicycling on a rope at this point? No, nowhere near. I'm juggling three torches on the rope and I have six volunteers holding the rope and I'm doing a comedy bit with them where the guys who are going to hold the rope all say like big strong men. And the guy who's going to pass the torches goes three hot torches or <laughs> sure. Yeah. I made it up, but it's the same as the, yeah, the same yeah, yeah, sure. shit, but it was feeding me and it was giving me time on stage, which at the time was what I needed. And uh, I ran into Barry again and ended up traveling with him and he helped me to get laid, <laughs> which was also fun because that was also something I didn't really figure out that well on the trip before that. Right. Um, <laughs> so I hung out with Barry and ran around with him in his van and we met lots of girls and did lots of shows and had kind of, uh, you know, real traveling in Europe in a van busker life. Um, right. Adventure. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> And then I went back home, back to Berkeley. And at that point, Motion Fest was happening in San Francisco, which was another big influence because uh, Motion Fest kind of gathered all these really amazing teachers and performers in one place and kind of gave us access to different types of training in the form of afternoon workshops and lots of coaching on marketing and taxes and all the stuff you need to become a professional performer. And at Motion Fest, we got inspired to create a circus show together. David and I, and another friend of ours, David Posnanter, from who I had known from University of Santa Cruz. We sang in the opera together in Santa Cruz. And cool. Juggled a lot. And yeah. We were kind of a trio with David Birnbaum for a while, and to a certain extent still are. So we founded this circus with 11 artists, eight circus artists and three musicians. And managed to get enough funding to perform it at the UC Santa Cruz and then performed it again in San Francisco and um, put together a, a pretty good show. Like for our skill level, a very good show. Strong characters and really like developing character relationships through the technique and uh, no talking. Stage show, kind of like futuristic, kind of like future street and, you know, we wanted to smash the old conventions and, like, we started the show by having a boombox play. And then I walked on stage and, like, snapped my fingers and my whole crew of circus ruffians came and, like, one of them passed me a sledgehammer and I'd smash the boombox right. that was playing the traditional circus music and then we'd do our crazy stuff. And we had Corey Tobito in the show and he was a, you know, Cirque du Soleil little acrobat. So right. he provided two finales at least. Um, for the show <laughs> and then we did some pretty cool three ball stuff some synchronized and you know the show was 
very successful for the audience and we enjoyed it a lot and it gave us stage experience and we broke more than even you know we each made 50 bucks on the show that we rehearsed for six weeks or whatever mm-hmm. but we all kind of knew like we're not trained enough to make a circus maybe we had moments where we thought no we could actually do this but really like we all wanted to go to school and get actually good because i realized when i got back to san francisco and did motion fest and started this circus company with them that this wasn't just a way to travel that this is actually something that i really like that i really that i need to do i also took my first workshop with avner eisenberg at the motion fest and um that was profoundly influential for me it was my first experience with a a master clown teacher and uh, I had a really good positive experience on stage in that workshop where I walked on stage and turned my hat around and breathed and everyone like flipped out laughing I felt amazing and I was like oh whoa that's not like doing a trick that's like just being real on stage and having people see me in a different way yeah it has a different power and ooh I want to try. So I went to his two-week-long workshop the following summer. And no, it wasn't the following summer. It was the summer after that. See, I mean, (laughs) sort of derail you a little bit, but I mean, more than anyone I've ever met in this entire game, you are like a student of it. Quite literally. Like, you're not studying your influences or like watching shows and going, I see how that works. Like... I don't know whether you're a magnet for it or it's a magnet for you, but like actual training is a thing. I mean, because I mean, at least five points in the last 40 minutes, you've been like, and then we did this and we learned this thing from these people. Like that's a right. What in you requires that or, or <laughs> it requires the wrong word, but like drives that level of, I've been wondering that lately because I was rewriting my bio recently <laughs> and and thinking about my history because I'm nearing the end at the moment of the kind of continued education that I designed for myself in terms of full-time training, which I can tell you all about right now or we can keep going chronologically. Well, yeah, wish. no, I just... And so I've been sort of reflecting on on where that came from besides just like the drive to be better or the satisfaction of learning. Well, I guess that's all part of it. I mean, I was raised by two PhDs. Right. So I didn't want to get Freudian. I was just wondering. No, no, that's not, <laughs> that's not Freudian. That's yeah. like education had a very high value in my family. And so, you know, I watched my parents get those PhDs and study their asses off for my childhood and also saw their status and their capacity and their potential grow in mm. that sense. And so I never doubted the value of education and also everything that I really tried to learn. If I found a good teacher and I put my mind to it, I got good at it. So when I was doing my street show, I knew that it wasn't my potential. Like in San Francisco, working on Fisherman's Wharf, where I worked, I started going and doing shows with Chris Carney, actually. Not with him, but on the same pitch. And uh, I knew I was doing a hack show. It was a lot of material that I made up. But it was the same shit everybody else makes up. I was doing the circus at the same time and learning other stuff. So I wasn't stagnating. But at the same time, I was. And shortly before I went to the Avner workshop, a friend of mine asked me 
Actually, Lindsay Benner. She's a yeah. street performer. So yeah, I should, yeah. And she was, <laughs> she was uh, my, one of my best friend's younger sisters. And she had watched me grow up through this and saw like the incredible just joy and delight at getting a hold of this skill and finding this way to communicate with the people. Because that's the other thing, like, say what you will about hack shows. I was learning the skill of creating focus on the street and making connection to an audience and hearing when each one of those people was paying attention or not and knowing what it meant to have a volunteer on stage or not. And just this huge sum of skills and sensitivities that you develop through doing any successful street show is completely aside of the material. Like whatever show you do on the street, if it's going to be successful, you develop those sensitivities in some way. Sure. Um, So anyway, she asked me, do you still love it? And I said, yes. (laughs) And at that time, I was doing consistently huge, very successful money shows every time. Just bang, bang, bang. And in the summertime in San Francisco at that time, we were doing really good on the pitch. But I was definitely reaching the point where it wasn't going to work anymore because I was stopping loving it in the same way. So then I went to Abner and he just ripped me a new asshole. <laughs> and I did one of my street routines in his workshop in the evening performance lab that he has. And he said, like, the feeling I get from you when you're doing this is arrogance. And uh, he also heckled me in the middle of it, <laughs> which was horrifying. <laughs> I don't remember what the actual heckle was. Right. But, um, yeah, he really called me out. You know, one of the Obner's foundational things is you can do funny stuff on stage or you can not do funny stuff on stage, but you have to be real first. And his way of teaching me to be real was to push me towards another level of vulnerability than I had ever exposed in performing on the street. I can't imagine why. (laughs) So that critique that he gave me was pretty hard. And also I completely died as well. The audience totally didn't respond to what I was doing. And afterwards I was kind of like in a heap and my roommate grabbed me and like said, come on, took me up to the costume department. And Abner had said, I want to see you in, in some, he said, you have to step away from your natural elegance. You're like, you can't be Mr. Tai Chi all the time. And I was doing a lot of Tai Chi at the time. He said, I'd like to see you in a suit that's too small for you and some big glasses and a bow tie. And I went up to the costume room with my uh, roommate at the time and we tried on a bunch of stuff until something clicked. And then I went downstairs and like, there was a bunch of people still awake in the barn, the celebration barn. And they just all just started laughing hysterically. And we played in the kitchen uh, or the dining room for an hour with all different stuff. And just the character was hilarious. It just like just popped out of me. And uh, that's the same character I still play. So that's the birth of the that's character. the birth that... of Pete Sweet, the Pete Sweet in the show. Right. The lovable guy who rides a unicycle on a rope. Right. So uh, it's developed and shifted a lot since then. But that And was did Omner see it? Yeah, like I'm the just following like, morning or something. Yeah, yeah, or? he saw it the next day and, and loved it, and it was real. I mean, it is real. I exposed a part of myself through that character that gives me a lot of energy. I get a lot of pleasure out of playing that character. 
So I, when I went home from the workshop, I was just like, well, I can't go back to doing my hack street show. No way. Right. Um, so I basically just put the character into the street show and the street show collapsed. <laughs> right. I still kept the rope routine. So I still was getting on a rope and juggling three torches at the end. So, uh, I still paid my rent, but I didn't know at the beginning of the show if it was going to completely fall apart or actually work. But I was playing clown on the street and I would also fall out of the character and back in. And it gave me a lot of chance to struggle with basically the show I was doing before I was using a set of tools, many of which did not apply anymore with the character because I was being smarter and faster than my audience in the first show. And the character is kind of slower and stupider than the audience. So probably two thirds of my standard material fell out of the show in the first day because it just didn't apply anymore. And I started to find what the character would do. And it was great. It was great training. It was really hard. I wanted to throw up before I went out, <laughs> but it was good. And that suffering in front of people was, well, it was suffering, but it was also success because when the character worked, it actually worked. It was like excavating this incredibly beautiful city or like building a tool. It was like finding the statue under the rock. I'm looking for the metaphor. Yeah, no, I think you found three of them in a row, so it's okay. Um, We can move on. We can move on. Okay, good. Because, uh, you know, I also didn't get heckled. I mean, if this character would just go out on the stage and breathe, then people love him immediately. You know, me opening my soul to the audience just opened them up just immediately. And uh, I remember things like doing a show on Pier 39 and having this gang of... Asian teenagers come and kind of like talking to me after my show was done and I'm like oh the show's done and then they sat and waited for my next show and that whole bunch of them came like 13 of them and they're all sitting there just spitting on the ground in front of my show before I was going to come out and uh, they had already been kind of like heckling me before the show and I just like went and hid in the closet and then I came out in character and I looked at one of them and this is my whole front row and I knew they could slay me. And, uh, I looked at one of them and he said something. And then I just looked at him and I just breathed and smiled in the character. And he just completely stopped what he was saying and laughed. And then all of his friends laughed and then they were completely on my side for the rest of the time. And there was no heckler line needed. There was no make them look bad or stupid. None of that was necessary. It was just like, they thought that I was going to be strong and they were going to poke at me or that's what I'm projecting because mm-hmm. they were doing that. They were yeah. poking at me before, but as soon as they saw that I was vulnerable, then there was no point anymore. And when I would get heckled, all I'd have to say was like, <laughs> Oh, shut up. And the audience was just love yeah, it. Right. You win. Yeah, I win. Yeah. yeah. Because it's just like, you just, you don't want to bully that guy or anybody that does an aggressive act against that character is immediately a bully. And so the whole rest of the audience is with me. Yeah. I have that thought whenever I see someone with like a, the learner's permit sign on their car uh-huh. and then you see someone honk at that person, mm-hmm. like, cause they don't put their foot on the gas the minute the light goes green or whatever. You, you're like, all that has just happened is 
the person who honked has identified themselves as having the blackest heart <laughs> possible. Right. Yeah. Like exactly. The, yeah, so it's the exact same thing. Of like everyone who witnesses Pete Sweet, this lovable character, get heckled, goes, "Well, that heckler is evil." They have right. They, that's that's yeah. not a person that we identify with at all. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and the thing that was interesting about playing that on Fisherman's Wharf also is that it's a pretty hard environment. Like, I have a lot of stories from that time (laughs) from people I knew well who I saw regularly on that pitch in the kind of three years that I worked it regularly. Three have had violent deaths. Like, (laughs) there was a guy named Slow Joe who was always institutionalized and then would get let out and come and just drink himself silly who actually would state the goal of destroying our shows and he would go and like sit next to people and then like try and put his arm around audience people and just like not say loud heckles that you could deal with but just like corrode the show Um, and also go into the middle circle when I was on the rope which of course is not sustainable right it's distracting and dangerous Um, yes so Jim this other guy who would push around his dog in a cart would drag him out of the show to save our shows because he liked us and he OD'd in the bathroom on the pitch and then I know this is getting long and tangential no that's fine it's It's all about it's all about the show should be called tangents good good So there was this band called the Brothers and Sisters Blues Band on Fisherman's Wharf. And they didn't always get their shit together to come out. Like, they weren't regular. You never knew when they were going to come. They would come in this band that was held together by wire and duct tape. And and they would just fight and throw out all this old amp equipment on the street. I don't even know what was powering it. And they played the meanest fucking blues. I mean, it was so good. If you stop to listen to it you'd realize that you were in the presence of powerful art, like Mm. really, really real blues. And uh, one day uh, the couple had a really bad fight and the police came and broke it up. And then after that, she left and he came out and was just playing the guitar first with one of his buddies. And they had this kind of like boy band energy of like, uh, you know, my old lady's gone like, yeah. rah, 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 like and then playing lots of Hendrix and stuff and then uh, then his buddy left and then he was just out there by himself just playing like really sad songs on the wharf and I remember going out one night and on the wharf oftentimes at sunset the wind picks up and it gets really cold and then after sunset the wind dies down and the fog kind of settles in and it gets warmer yeah. Or if you're lucky, the fog doesn't settle in and the wind dies down. But on this night, I was sitting in my car waiting for the wind to die down. It just wasn't dying down. It was just brutally cold. And everybody was kind of like huddled in their jacket trying to make it to the next wherever they were going. And he was out playing the blues and there was nobody watching him. He was just, he, somebody walked by him, didn't stop. And he was like, if you don't love the blues, you got a hole in your soul. And there was one couple in a parked car with their window open that would clap at the end of his song, mm. like, you know, 20 yards away. And he did that for five or six days. And then I went in to Johnny Rockets one day to get a chicken sandwich before my show. And I saw him and I was like, hey, how you going? And he said, 
I'm not good. And he said, uh, I'm no good without my old lady. I'm just, I'm no good. And I said, well, do you think she's going to come back? And he said, not this time. Oof. And the next day they pulled her out of the bay. Apparently he had killed her the night of that fight that the police broke up. Wow. She went back for the dog. And so, um, yeah, uh, it had a real, like an actual dark side. Uh, the carriage, the guy who ran the carriage rides that stopped at the pitch who I talked to every day. He also, just a few years ago, hung himself. And, uh, yeah, when I was first playing Pete Sweet out on the street, this vulnerable character <laughs> clowning with the people, uh, a good friend of mine who's now an art therapist, she saw the show and she was like, this is really good what you're doing. This is really important. But this is not a good place. I gave you two years. You're only allowed to stay here two years. <laughs> I was like, okay, sure, Paula. But it was right in about two years that I started to burn out on it. And um, one of the things also that kept me learning is that I always wanted to be ready to transition out of the thing when the time came. Like, I saw old street performers that were doing it because they needed drug money or were doing it just because they needed money but hated it. And I knew that I didn't ever want to be in a position where I didn't like it anymore and there's no other way I could make a living. And that's the trap that a lot of street performers fall in because when you can go out on the street and make 200 bucks in 40 minutes, how are you going to go work a regular job? So if you can't move beyond that as a performer, then you're going to have to shift to something else or you're going to get stuck. So, yeah, I kept training. And by the time I was burning out on the street, I had enough uh, momentum built to transition into working festivals. And is that when Pete Sweet was really, truly born? Well, Pete Sweet was born in the costume room at the Abner Workshop. But... I never tried to book my show until Pete's suite was integrated into the show because I knew that it wasn't good enough. It wasn't interesting enough. It wasn't different enough. It was good enough for my audience. Like, they loved it. But I knew that to apply to a festival, I wanted to have something else. And once I had Pete's suite, I didn't really have a good show yet, but I had a great character. And so where the show failed, the character still succeeded. Which, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but, <laughs> but um, it took longer for me to actually build good material. And uh, I did that by keeping performing and also by expanding my skill set. And I went to dance school for a year and I went to circus school for two years. And I increased my technical level on the slack rope tremendously, which gave me a lot more freedom. And I started singing again, which I'd done during my youth and... So that's when I, I kind of, I made the mini, the Moocher number that's in my show now in circus school as part of the final show. And it was so hard that I couldn't pull it off every time, but I just like put it in the show and started doing it and it's developed from there. Um, <laughs> uh, oh yeah. There was one step that I skipped earlier, which was that 
When I learned how to walk on the rope, I had no idea how hard it would be to go up high. And one thing that we did with the Dusk Beat Circus was I built a rig so that I could perform slacker up on stage. So then I went up high. And even just being four feet off the ground, I guess even I guess at that time I was more, more like five feet off the ground, almost two meters. Terrifying. Like, you can fall and break your head. <laughs> right. Even though you can do it at six inches. Yeah, it's a whole other thing to do it at height, and then a whole other thing to do it at height in front of an audience. So, like, the unicycle, which I could balance on in a day in China, being able to perform that at height in front of an audience at the end of my show, mounting and dismounting and juggling, whoo, that was a whole lot more work. So one of the reasons why I went to circus school was because I realized I needed to be somewhere with safety equipment where I would be on the rope every single day and have a good coach. And I found circus coaches also, even before I went to circus school, I was training on the rope with Adi and Maluka at the National Circus School of Belgium and with Masha Dimitri, who may have been the first slack rope walker that I ever saw when I was a kid. Because she worked with Cirque du Soleil. I should just change the story to that. It would be much yeah, better. Yeah, tell it. Okay. So I, we'll go back to the beginning. So when I was We're going to re-record all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that's probably what happened. That I saw her in one of the first Cirque du Soleil shows. Wow. Performing Wire. And then she became my teacher. Um, so here we are today. And you're studying theater in Florence. Yeah. In your third year of the three-year program. Yes. Beginning soon. So I wanted to work on my physical, technical skills and get them up to as high a level as I could, given that I was performing all summer and, you know, my own capacities, but to just kind of get as much technical ability as I could and then go to theater school. This has been my plan for a long time. Early on, I met Giovanni Fusetti, who was my second clown teacher, who I've worked much, much more with than Abner since then. I took probably four clown workshops with him and he directed and co-wrote a show called Swinging High which is a theater show which I'm going to start touring once I'm done with theater school and <laughs> have a bit more time <laughs> so my education up to this point has been three years of Alexander Technique training a year of dance school two years of circus school and two years of theater school going into three so it'll be nine years of training at the end, which I figure is about a PhD. Yeah, but yeah. If it's even <laughs> even if they don't give you the, <laughs> they don't give me shit. But I have a career, and I'm just growing and changing and loving it. And hopefully, the character should be able to legally change its name to Doctor Pete Sweet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. At the, at the very least, Professor. <laughs> Professor Pete. <laughs> and and what's next? Well, theater school has been fantastic because I've learned how to access many different characters that live inside of me mm. um, that are as very much as real as Pete Sweet ever was, or more, that have different things to say, uh, that have different poetry. So I'm interested in going kind of further away from my street roots in terms of how I generate material because the Pete Sweet show was still mostly conceived and developed in front of the audience over a long period of doing shows. And 
working in theater school, I've found a completely different creation process, which allows me to make material much more quickly that has a very high quality. And also, I've learned how to work with other people in a way that isn't the David Birnbaum, Peter Aidney right. <laughs> double act crash. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, we make a new piece every week in theater school, nearly. Sometimes we have slightly longer projects, uh, two, three weeks. But mostly it's making a lot of different material. So I have a lot of things I want to create. And I've also found that the festivals in Europe, particularly in France, but also in Germany and other places, have extremely good conditions. So you you don't have to work for focus at all. People are there to see your show, and they're waiting when you arrive. And there's no crowd building. There's no hatting. There's just you presenting your art to them or creating it with them. So I want to take advantage of that environment to birth new works into the outdoor scene. And I want to train more on the rope and take Pete Sweet to circus festivals and do some more variety work. I've done some indoor variety work in Germany with that character and loved it and just had a fabulous time. I want to tour the Swinging High, the show I created with Giovanni. It needs to be updated because I kind of put it on hold while I went to theater school and mm. I have a lot more. Too many Al Gore references? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just better than I was. Okay. <laughs> um, that's the other thing. I think some people go to school and it doesn't make them better. Or people go to school and it makes them better, but they're waiting. They're going to school as a way to stay out of performing. And so they get this perpetual student, but they never actually make anything. And I get better when I go to school. I just do. Like, it does a tremendous amount for me to put the whole show aside, not have to worry about the audience, not have to worry about making a living, and just dedicate myself to developing the skill or whatever it is. And I've been growing my career and performing hundreds of shows on stage and in the street the whole time that I've been in school. So it's really worked for me. Cool. I just cannot wait to see what's next. Thanks very much, Pete. You're very welcome. Awesome. Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these stories. We throw hours into the production of each episode and put them out into the world for free because we feel the stories and examples that are shared provide the sort of inspiration capable of elevating the craft of street theater to a higher level. If you enjoy the content, help us cover the hard costs of maintaining and delivering it to you by throwing a little love into our online hat. Just go over to the Busker Hall of Fame website and click on the Donate button. $20 seems to have been the average drop for people who have made the effort, but why be average? Your contributions really do allow us to continue to grow this resource and generate more content, so thanks in advance for supporting this project. Music for today's podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. Simply go to the podcast library, type in stories from the pitch, and download away. And while you're there, please do consider leaving a review and giving us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we could improve? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Buskerhoff content yet? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash buskerhalloffame. Follow us on Twitter and Yappy at Busker Stories, or sign up for our newsletter on the Busker Hall of Fame website. 
If you happen to be wondering, beyond just learning kung fu and how to ride a unicycle on a slack rope, what else did Pete get up to when he was at that monastery in the mountains of Yunnan province in China? Well, we've got the answer for you. Oh, we taught the abbot of the monastery how to juggle, which was also pretty fun. Yeah, he was. Cool. Yeah, it was very cool. He was terrible at learning how to juggle, but everything he did looked gorgeous. Right. So it took him forever to get three balls. But when he could juggle three balls, you could put it on stage and you'd be amazed just because he's got 30 years of martial arts experience. He would drop a ball and go into the splits to pick it up. Right. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Which makes the drop line sudden burst of gravity all the more effective. <laughs> <laughs> on behalf of myself, co-producer Lindsay Lindbergh, Mike Wood, who captured this interview, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. Right. So the first thing is we got to get you funny.